Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. I'm very happy that our guest today is Mr. Jason Garbis. I'm somebody both myself and John have met. In fact, we met recently at a CSA event. Um, really somebody who, who fascinates me and talks a lot about zero trust. So we're going to concentrate, I think, this conversation on zero trust. Um, but Jason, the same as everyone else we have on the show, um, give us a little bit of background. Where did you start and kind of how did you get to where you are today? All right. So thanks, Jay. Thanks, John. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, I have had uh, an extra cup of coffee, so we're uh, we're ready to go go deep and fast here. Um, so my background is I've worked in technology uh, so my whole career, over 35 years, mostly for software vendors. Um, and I've had a variety of roles. So I began my career, uh, I got an undergraduate degree in computer science. Um, and then I was a software engineer for about seven, eight years. And you know, I'm dating myself, but I started out writing Windows and OS2 code for building software products. We built distributed systems, uh, network systems, building you know, business applications and some other software tools around that. And that was great. I love that job. Got the opportunity to go deep on that, that technology. And uh, I'm glad that I never have to deal with the uh, Windows 3.x segmented 16-bit uh, memory address ever again, because that, that was a nightmare. Um, after that, I switched into a technical consulting role, uh, working for a middleware company. And I really liked that role because I had the opportunity to visit a lot of large enterprise clients uh, and very quickly dive in and help understand their enterprise architectures, how they were using this, our software products to, to design and build these complex distributed systems. Um, this was all built on the CORBA standard at the time. So this was obviously the mid to late 90s. And um, it was really interesting. CORBA was a, was a very well thought out framework. There are a whole set of services around that. There was a naming service, there was a security service, there was a transaction service. Um, so that really kind of gave me a what I feel was a full 360 degree view of enterprise architecture. Um, and then after that, I really shifted into a product management role. Uh, I, I My wife and I had young kids at the time, so I didn't uh, want to have a high travel role. Um, and in the product management role, I obviously work closely with engineering teams, but I also work with our sales teams and our enterprise customers. And through that process, really ended up with a focus on security. So I dove into this with a uh, a role at a uh, identity governance provider, identity management company. Um, and then for the last eight or so years, working in what today we call Zero Trust, um, uh, as a the leading product management for uh, a vendor that launched uh, uh, a product, network security product based on the software-defined perimeter architecture, today what we call a zero trust network access. Uh, I've also, in those last eight years, had this volunteer role, now leadership role with the Cloud Security Alliance uh, as part of the zero trust working group. And that's where I think you know, we've come across each other. And in that role, um, I really like it because it's a very... Um, kind of independent and I won't say academic, but uh, a very theoretical discussion that lets us have great conversations. And then at the same time, applying that to real world scenarios, which is one of the elements of the CSA that I like. Yeah, I I, I mean, that is where we met. So obviously, I'm a member of the working group as well. John's done some stuff as well. So I think the CSA are doing a, a really good thing for the zero trust kind of movement. But I, I want to ask what 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 is it about zero trust that kind of that interests you that that, that appeals to you? I mean, it, it's it's something we've spoken with on the podcast before with John Kindervag and Chase Cunningham and and other people. And I'd really like to get your insights into: Did you kind of just fall into zero trust, or were you actively searching to 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 go into that area? What was it that kind of fascinates you? Um, 
So I think that, um, and it's just as an aside, this is one of the, the things that really motivated me about a year ago to step out on my own, uh, uh, to, leave, um, to leave my role at uh, the security vendor, uh, launch number line security uh, to provide enterprises with zero trust strategy and guidance and, uh, and education. Um, so, so first of all, I really believe that information security is such an incredibly important thing that all of us have a really important mission. If you think about even putting aside our personal lives, but everything that we do professionally is digitized and run by software systems and by IT. And we're also under, our organizations are under constant attack from criminals looking for financial gain or nation states, hacktivists and things like that. And I really believe that those bad actors are uh, have the opportunity or have the, the potential to significantly and negatively impact our way of life, our freedoms, our economy, uh, our freedom of, of movement, our safety. Um, and that's really what is makes me so passionate about information security. And zero trust, I really believe, represents uh, the, the, the combination of best practices and approaches. So it's really the best way that we know how to approach security in, in the industry. So I really believe that it's incumbent upon all of us to do everything we can to talk about this and to get organizations to adopt it as 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 quickly and effectively as possible to make ourselves more resilient to the inevitable attacks. So let's let's get into adoption because um, that's one of the challenges. Uh, both Jay and I, and, and I'm sure yourself, have worked in the enterprise, and uh, it's really about increasing revenue or reducing risk uh, and getting a project like Zero Trust funded for the long term, I see as a challenge. Uh, there may be interest in it at the get-go. It may seem exciting, um, but it's the long-term uh, leg of this that I see as the challenge. And I know you've written a book, um, Getting Started with Zero Trust, and, and let's, let's certainly talk about that. Um, but where do you see enterprises getting into it who have not been breached, who have not had that, that moment that unlocks the revenues and the, unlocks the senior leadership uh, supporting a project like that. Where do you see companies getting started and how do you see them continuing to move down the, um, you know, and, and instituting this, this strategy uh, for the long term? Yeah, no, those are great. Those are great points, John. And I think you touch on something that is, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a myth, but maybe it's not completely a myth. Um, so, so my my perspective is that zero trust is a strategy and a philosophy um, and an approach, and you don't need anyone's permission. You don't need any budget to adopt that. You can wake up tomorrow and say, "I want to view this world. I want to view my enterprise security architecture and IT infrastructure through this zero trust lens." And as you, you internalize that, you know you start to see things a little bit differently. So. It's absolutely the case that you can start on this journey without requiring budgets or things like that. It's not true that you're not going to require resources, right? You're going to require your time and attention. If you do things, because you need to do things differently to do zero trust, it's going to require changes of some sort to business processes, to the way people access, to network infrastructure, et cetera. And in some cases, I'll say in many cases, that does require additional budget. So you know, there are elements of truth to that myth. but I think in many cases, and in fact, security leaders should, should use this probably as a starting point, which is to take stock of what you have in your infrastructure, look at how you're using it. And it's probably the case, I would argue it's probably the case in most enterprises, that you can begin to make better use of elements of your infrastructure that are in place to get you going down the zero trust journey. 
um, and make some improvements there, whether it's looking at your next-gen firewalls, your identity management systems, other types of um, components like maybe your SIM or IDS, IPS device management. All of these things are ingredients or part of a zero-trust architecture, um, and probably you can begin to make use of them in some fashion. Now, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes cycles, so it's, it, this stuff isn't completely free. Um, there was, uh, so yeah, there, in some cases, there are situations where it, adopting zero trust can free up additional budget. And the ones that I've seen are most, that kind of are most dramatic are where organizations have, you know, very expensive wide area networks around MPLS. So as organizations adopt zero trust network access, there definitely are many situations where they can really dial that down by, in some cases, you know, 80% plus, and that could free up a lot of, a lot of money. That's not the case for every enterprise. And we shouldn't go into this expecting that, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to free up budget and we're going to, you know, it's either be budget neutral, et cetera. But really, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit more, is the, the our organizations exist to deliver on a business mission. And in some cases, that's financially driven. In some cases, it might be if we're for a nonprofit, for example, you know, delivering on the mission of the business, we're a nonprofit hospital, whatever it is. Um, and we call this stuff business value. Uh, and that business value is something that security needs to be focused on it. Because when you're adopting zero trust or making any change in your organization, you really want to, in most cases, tie it to, to business value. So you're improving some business process, you're opening the doors to new top line revenue, you're making something more efficient, et cetera. You're enabling the secure adoption of technology. And all those things are what unlocks support and momentum and enthusiasm for your zero trust initiative versus, hey, everybody, we're changing your VPN from this to that. And guess what? It's more secure. Fantastic. Okay. That's necessary. You're not going to win friends because no one loves their VPN and no one loves change. Whereas if you say, guess what? We've got a new way for you to enable this partner, your customer or client to access this system and that's going to open up, you know, a new revenue stream for us. You know, people are going to have a party at your door. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question on where where did you think people should start? But you've kind of alluded to that or answered some of that. And I guess it's going to be different depending on what industry you're in. But is there, is there something everyone can do to start this journey, like as a foundational element? Or is, is it truly just depending on your business need? Well, there certainly is something that everyone can do, but it's, it's not the same thing for everybody. Um, and it's, you know, maybe I'll contradict myself a little bit, but there may well be security focused or technical uh, things that make appropriate, that are appropriate for your first project. It really depends. It's one of the ways I like to think about things is um, looking at it on a kind of an axis of, is this initiative much more purely security focused, or is it also delivering business value? And, you know, there's no right or wrong placement, but you have to be aware of if we're doing something that's security focused, how much of an impact is it going to have on the business? And is there the opportunity for me to encounter organizational resistance versus this is something that's delivering business value, I'm going to have support and buy-in so that when we change this or swap out this technology or ask people to operate some process differently, they'll be enthusiastic about that. You know, for, for example, um, 
One client I worked with had a very inefficient process for getting devices to newly onboarded employees because of the way they did stuff. And they had an old on-premises directory. They had to ship the laptops to headquarters, get them provisioned, and then ship them out. It ended up taking about three weeks in total. So they switched over. They changed that process. And now things are directly shipped to the end users. They get it in three days and everyone's happy. Now, there were changes to the process. There were some changes to the technology, but this was such a big win. Uh, for across the company, because every department was hiring, um, that there was a lot of enthusiasm for that, uh, for that support, for that, for that change. I think one of the things that, that you've raised is, I mean, both me and John agree that zero trust is a strategy and, and not a product. So it raises a question on who should own the project? Because I certainly speak to a lot of people that it's owned by IT or it may be owned by security. But where are, where are you seeing it be successful? Who who are owning the – let me rephrase that. Who owns a successful Zero Trust project? I think security team should absolutely own that. And it's I really view it as an initiative, which is, if you will, one level up from the projects. So if you're a security leader, you can say, all right, we're, we're embracing zero trust. And this is a multi-year journey. And you know, we, this is where we are. We'll do our assessment. Um, within that journey, there's going to be lots of projects. And some of them might be very technical focused, like, hey, we want to segment our network or we want to do a VPN replacement. Many of them, arguably most of them, should really be business focused. Oh, we're entering the European market. Uh, oh, we're acquiring this other company and we need to integrate their networks and their systems. Oh, we're trying to automate compliance reporting. You know, oh, we want to drive, um, change the way that we do a business process around administrator access to production um, in order to address compliance issues and in order to reduce the blast radius of the inevitable attack. Um, oh, we're launching a new cloud-based smart connected product for that we're manufacturing and rolling out that's a big initiative for the company, and we want to enable that from a security perspective. So there's these getting started things um, are one way to find out what can drive business value. But I think that no matter kind of uh, project by project, who's really responsible for that, obviously security and IT have a role to play, but security should have the big picture that says, okay, all these things fall under the, the overall zero trust um, initiative so yes uh for security to be successful though they have to generate buy-in from other aspects of the business especially in it uh networking uh application folks uh the infrastructure team uh what methods or advice might you have for a security leader that's looking to go down this path um but may get a skeptical reception from for instance the network team or an application team that you know just doesn't want to focus on security. Uh, have you seen any methods out there, or uh, have you had any experience in that? Uh, other than you know beating them about the head with the fact that security is so important. Um, so so yeah, it's um, part of this is definitely a, a mindset shift, and I think in particular on the networking teams, a lot of times networking teams have you know, one set of goalposts or targets in mind, which is I want to have a very resilient, high performance, low latency network, et cetera. And uh, they can they can certainly do that, but it ends up being very 
separated from security, certainly separated from identity. And that big flat open network is too often just a very inviting target for attackers. So it, it, there definitely needs to be a mindset shift there around networking team. You know, your goal is not just to move packets from here to there quickly and reliably. It's also to enable, you know, secure access control on top of that. And part of it is also probably even within that universe, there are headaches or areas of friction or things that are difficult for the networking team too. You know, maybe there's a constant treadmill of firewall rule updates, or there's just a lot of unknown firewall rules or a lot of complexity around network configuration, especially if you've got uh, distributed locations connected by wide area networks. So those are things that can definitely be simplified by a shift to zero trust. If you go to the networking team, for example, and say, you know what, you've got an average of whatever it is, 10,000 firewall rules in each of these areas, we can get rid of those and reduce them down to a few hundred and instead push the decision-making over to the zero trust policy enforcement point. And guess what? Guess who's design, designing those policies? It's no longer you and your team who have to figure that out. It's the line of business and the application owners. You know, that may well be, will hopefully be receptive from the networking team. Now, I know you get people who said, well, you know, we're a you know an XYZ vendor shop. Everyone's certified in in that vendor's you know uh, certification program, and this is how we do stuff. So there definitely you definitely can encounter some of that, and sometimes it's a recognition of okay, you know we're we're changing the way you do things. There's going to be new tools or things like that. Um, hopefully, there are elements of this where um, you're freeing up their time to work on more strategic things and away from. Um, continual firewall rule maintenance, for example. Are you seeing, um, let me rephrase that. I, I, I've I've been at several events recently and, and, and they're certainly in the UK and then in the rest of EMEA, there are certainly more conversations being had around zero trust versus what it was six months ago or, or a year ago. Are you seeing more uptake in, in CISOs and CIOs and businesses want to go on this journey? And if so, do you think it's because of the legislation that's coming in into place? Or is it because people truly see this is, is helping? And the reason I ask that is because I'm certainly seeing that people are, are being told that they must do it versus see the value in it. And for me, Projects tend to be a lot more likely to succeed if you see value in it versus you are being told to do it. Yeah, I think that to some degree, these are two sides of the same coin. So the the U.S. federal government put in place a mandate that all civilian agencies have to follow a zero trust architecture by uh, essentially 12 months from now. Um, and obviously, that has sparked a lot of investment of time and budget and energy within the federal government. But what it's also done is it's really sparked, um, I think, something valuable to the entire industry, which is the publication of some really good work uh, that's all it's all public, so anyone can use it, from CISA and NIST and the NSA, even the USDOD. And that, that work is really looked at and digested and used by the private sector. So the fact that the government, federal government is doing that has made um, these resources available. And it's something that I work you know, mostly with the private sector, some with government agencies, but it sparks a lot of conversation and attention from the private sector, from the enterprises, obviously from the vendors as well. So 
it's a little bit of a virtuous cycle here when now that the federal government is doing all that work, the private sector is utilizing these assets and putting some energy and focus on it. And I think that there definitely is a recognition that this represents the best way to do this. And these are kind of the combination of the best practices and the best approaches. If you're an enterprise, there's clearly no mandate that you adopt zero trust. If you're an enterprise doing business with the federal government, you know, I think that there you know, will be some kind of follow on that says, hey, we need to make sure that you live up to the standards. But that's really a secondary driver. You see, um, so obviously brought up the, the, the Biden executive order and, and some of the other aspects of, of the federal side of things. But we're also starting to see other sectors get involved. Uh, New York DFS is a great example. Um, They've, they've rewritten and, and next year will come out with their, I guess, Second Amendment, uh, which will focus a lot more on some of the aspects of zero trust, uh, risk-based authentication being one of them. Uh, then we also have the SEC uh, mandating, you know, breach reporting uh, within four days. If you have a material breach, you need to report it, um, putting more pressure on CISOs. Do you start to see, and, and as, as well with NIST, um, do you start to see more zero trustee type um, regulations starting to come down the pike uh, because of the breaches we're seeing uh, in, in some of the cyber activity that's starting to manifest itself? Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it, <laughs> zero trustee, I like that. It's a, it's definitely, I think, a reflection of zero trust being a, a collection of industry best practices. Um, so it's I, I would say it's a little bit more the regulators recognize we need to improve the way we're doing cybersecurity and they're taking elements of what is also in zero trust because it's because it's best best practices. I guess I've got a question on on somehow measuring zero trust, as in looking at a business and saying you've reached level one, level two, level three, whatever it may be. And we we spoke, I guess, a few months ago now, John, it was with Jim Rivas, and he was mm -hmm. talking about maybe having a, a zero trust maturity model. I can see some value in that, but I can also see it being really difficult. And obviously, some businesses have got more money to spend, and we've alluded to the fact that maybe you don't necessarily need to spend money. But do you see there being a zero trust maturity model in the pipeline? Well, there, I mean, Forrester's already kind of come up with one. I mean, Chase did a lot of research on this. It's out there. Um, but I'm curious to see if that's you know measured against when you need cyber insurance or uh, auditors come in uh, and, and start to say, all right, so what maturity level are you at with zero trust? Very similar to what you would do with like PCI. Yeah, this is a uh, so interesting area. You know, there are definitely a number of maturity models that are out there, and the one that we've seen really begin to be more most widely adopted is the one from CISA. So it's got the five pillars and the three cost cross cutting elements on the bottom, and that's really useful from a security perspective. Um, I, I do encourage enterprises to use that, um, and I also generally encourage them to do it in a relatively lightweight way. And what I mean by that is. Do your you do your self assessment against this maturity model. Try to do it in a number of days, not weeks or months. I mean, I've seen enterprises go a little bit crazy on this and take over a year to do that um, because it was a really large company and they just they went very very deep. And that's very useful to some degree, but it doesn't get you to the next step of delivering business value and making something that's actionable. 
uh, actionable for you. So I think that is really useful from a security perspective. And as security professionals, you can look at this and say, okay, fantastic. We're at the initial phase on the data pillar, and here's how we get to the next one. We're at the advanced stage on the identity pillar, and here's how we get up to optimal. However, that is only really consumable by people on the security side. If you take that that maturity model assessment, and other than at the very highest level, present that up to executive leadership or the board, it's really, they're just not going to understand understand that. Um, so there, there definitely are, I think, areas where we need to better have some sort of measurement, whether it's quantifiable or whether it's qualitative, that is meaningful to the business, um, to the board, and even to insurers. So we haven't really got there yet as, as an industry. I think that there's um, there's definitely a lot of work to do around this. There is stuff that's underway. I know that CISA has thought about this a little bit, but I don't think there's anything specific to that on the horizon. Uh, we've discussed, discussed this within the CSA and we haven't really got to consensus on yeah. what would this even look like. So that's definitely a question mark in the industry, right? Is there going to be something like the, um, there's a couple of vendors that do an external security uh, audit and kind of give you a scorecard around that. Um, you know, Will there be something like that, whether it's a letter grade or something more multidimensional than that around zero trust? Um, I, I think so, but it's, there's so much complexity to that, that we're really trying to balance out how do you do something that is going to be useful and meaningful without making it take you a year to, to do the survey. I mean, it's a really interesting topic because obviously if there's an executive order and everyone's been told they have to do it, how do you prove you've done it? It'll be, it'll be I mean, I, I come from a manufacturing background when we would have to hand over certifications for certain things. Cyber Essentials was one of them or Cyber Essentials Plus. I'm sure there'll come a point where customers are going to say, please prove to me that you are level three or level four. And I know CMMC's doing some work around that, and maybe they'll bring in some kind of zero trust element. But to be able to just say, here's the certificate, here you go. I mean, and I know it's really complex because you've got the pillars, and I, I don't quite know how we would do it, but I can see maybe that's going to come at some point. Well, think about it. A third, you have a third party. You have a third party that you're you're partnering with, and uh, just like a, a SOC two type thing, where you're yeah. like, "Hey, uh, I'm I'm zero trust, so uh, we can we can do our dance and 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 work together." Right, exactly. And there's some some good initial work that's happening right now. So the NIST National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, as part of the Zero Trust Architecture Initiative, has started to do some mappings from between zero trust principles and some of these frameworks, both the cybersecurity framework and the 853 set of controls. And that gets really, really detailed. So it's kind of, I would say, ingredients into some higher level model that we haven't as an industry defined yet. I think it pivots us nicely onto the fact that you're an author. Uh, I believe, I mean, I've got two of your books. You were kind enough to give me both of them and sign them. Um, what, what, what was it that possessed you to to write a book, and and what's involved in doing that? <laughs> so I actually wrote a, a book many years ago. Uh, it was over twenty years ago around Corba, and that was a great experience. But it also um, made me realize, okay, I can do this. So what happened was this was, I guess, about three three and a half years ago at this point, um, when um, working on in the working group um, at uh, at the CSA, and when you do that you have a lot of very collaborative work. And one of the things that we worked on was um, a, a fairly comprehensive white paper on, you know, I don't even remember what the topic was, but it was zero trust and maybe it was zero trust in cloud or something. But 
I realized that number one, I really wanted to write a lot more about looking at not just cloud, but every facet of the identity and security infrastructure. Uh, and number two, I realized it's very frustrating to try to collaborate with 20 other people to write uh, write a document. So um, I looked at this and I said, huh, well, this is interesting. And I know what's involved in writing that book because I've done it before. So uh, I kicked off that project. I put together an outline. Um, I wrote a couple of sample chapters. I picked uh, the identity chapter and the intro chapter to, and really drafted those. Um, to, and I remember I was doing this around, I think it was like a, over Thanksgiving break weekend um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I sort of said, okay, this is really going to work. So I found a co-author, uh, my friend Jerry Chapman. Uh, and I reached out to some publishers and started that conversation. Um, so what does it take? It generally takes about 12 months uh, from end to end if you're going through a traditional publisher. Um, and that's just, you know, writing writing close to 300 pages takes, takes time. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I like writing. And some days you'd sit down and you would just power through this. And you're like, this was fantastic. Other days you sit down and it's a grind. And you're like, well, I just spent three hours writing three paragraphs because you got to think about it. You got to do research. You got to corroborate things. Um, and then um, obviously there's the collaboration and discussion process. There's the editing process and the production process. So uh, I encourage people to do it. It's it's a lot of work. Uh, and, you know, they say you don't do it for the money because, you, you know, the royalties and the, the volume of sales on these books are not something that are going to uh, gonna, gonna let you retire. But I'm really thrilled when I get people who have read the book and uh, they tell me it's 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 been valuable to them and helpful. Um, and I view it definitely as a labor of love of helping to contribute to advancing uh, the industry forward. I mean, I mean, to be honest, I want to give it a shout out because I've I've read that one and I've read the one you gave me recently. I think they're both very good. Um, if anyone's interested in Zero Trust, I definitely think they're a good resource. I think George Finney's book, I'll, I'll give George a shout out as well. I think his book's very good, comes at it from a slightly different angle. Um, but there's certainly a year ago, there was very, very little kind of information on Zero Trust. And I think there are more books around and, and more details now. But um, I, I think, yeah, definitely it's it's worth, worth a read. It's a good are approach. There, are there other books out there that, I mean, because... I mean, we started off the podcast. Um, how do we convince other folks uh, outside of security or even within security to start adopt this uh, technology or this strategy? Really, um, I liken it back to the days of DevOps. You know, DevOps—it's it, really a mindset, and zero trust is really a mindset. It's just the security side. So, how do you change that mindset? How do you—you you, know—you you, you referred to it, Jason, um, earlier, where you know you've got that security guy or that network guy that's worked with X vendor, uh, they've certified on it. How do you change their mindset? How do you get them to open it up and go, you know, you need to look beyond that and just look at the technology as a tool. Um, we need to, you know, the strategy will help us um, and really start, you know, maybe it's a reading club to kind of help them pry them away from that, that thinking. Um, are you aware of other books out there that may help in that process? So uh uh, Jay mentioned uh, George Finney's book, Project Zero Trust. So I definitely recommend that. That's a uh, it's a work of fiction, but it captures uh, obviously an interesting story, but also captures the the five step process and the general approach of of adopting zero trust in um, in the enterprise. So um, I want to I want to thank George for writing that. I think he's as as a practicing CISO, he's got real world expertise and experience that he's he's reflected in that, um, and he also 
collaborated with John Kinderbog on that to capture and take the five-step process, which was part of um, kind of John's contributions to what we call the NSTAC report, um, and weave that into weave that into that. So that that's definitely worthwhile. Um, obviously, my two books um, I think are worthwhile. There's a number of others out there. I have not had time to go through to go through all of them. Um, I know that there's there's a couple more that are coming out. Um, I think that there are also a number of other resources that are fundamental that folks should use. So clearly the the, the NIST uh, special publication, 80207, Zero Trust Architectures, the NSTAC report I mentioned is a report called um, NSTAC report on trusted identity management and uh, I think Zero Trust. Um, so NSTAC is a, a federal commission established by the president and um, it's produces periodic technical reports and it's it's assembled from uh, testimony and and written um, contributions from experts so chase and John Kinderbog and a number of others contributed to that um so that's another another worthwhile uh, asset to look at um those are all good good foundational elements how about certifications what are you, certifications are there certifications out there as well that uh, may be leveraged to kind of get people moving in the right direction yeah, there are several. Um, Forrester has a zero trust certification. Um, I know a couple of the vendors do, and the CSA is actually just about to launch their uh, certificate in uh, zero trust knowledge as well. Yeah, I think it's called CCZT. Did CCZT, I get that right? Yeah, certificate of I believe competence in zero trust. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I've I've had the luxury of working on some of that as well. So, um. I think I think it's done very well because it's agnostic. I mean, I think some of the vendor ones are more vendor specific, and that's not to say they're not useful because they are. They still give you the right kind of information, um, but the agnostic ones teach you, I think, a bit more about kind of the, the fundamentals of ZT. Um, I guess one question before we kind of pivot onto the fun stuff: um, Where do you see Zero Trust going next? So I think that. There's really a couple, couple, I think a couple elements to it. So one is I really hope and I'm trying to uh, encourage organizations to share their case studies and lessons learned. And this is something that we as an industry, we read a lot about the bad news. This, this organization was breached. This vendor has this giant vulnerability, et cetera. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to say, okay, I work at a bank or a hospital or a manufacturing company. This is how we approach zero trust. This is what worked for us. This is the lessons learned, et cetera. So I think that there's a lot to that we can all learn from one another in that. And I really encourage security professionals to do that because it's great exposure for you professionally. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you to grow uh, professionally. And obviously you have to respect whatever secrecy uh, or confidential information from your organization. But I found that in almost all cases, you know, you can structure things in a way that it, the organization is okay for you to talk about it. Even if you can't say, we pick vendor X and here's a picture of our architecture, you can say, we used a SWIG and here's how we used it and here's what we learned, et cetera. So that's one piece to it. The second piece is I'm really keen on having a way for organizations to take the zero trust context around an identity and to be able to use that throughout their system. And some vendors are definitely leaned into that. Microsoft, I think, has done a great job with their new Entra private access and internet access capabilities. And you know, we're beginning to see elements from Microsoft of how you can tie that together. And other vendors are doing a similar thing. That's obviously proprietary vendor platform specific. That's not ideal, but certainly better than not having it. 
I would love for us to get to a point where we do have some sort of standards around how organizations can exchange signals and context between components. And I think we have a little bit, quite a ways to go before we do that. There are some emerging standards around that. Um, and I think that um, that would be definitely an interesting thing for us to, to look at. And it's a balancing act, right? If you're an enterprise, clearly there's a trend in the industry for enterprises to move toward fewer vendors and single vendor mega platforms. Um, and there's good reason to do that. But at the same time, what I feel bad about is that's going to tend to emphasize the proprietary vendor integration versus something that's open. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would like to see sharing of both positive and negative situations within Zero Trust. And, and because we all learn from each other. And I mean, one of the reasons we, we're even on this podcast and having these conversations is to help people on a journey. You you said before that Zero Trust is a journey. And that's the answer, I, or, or, or the topic that comes up a lot is, where do I start? And it's like, well, you need to start somewhere. John Kindervag says it's best just to start. But it, it is a journey. It's going to take time. It's not something you're going to do overnight. In fact, you should break it down into small chunks so you get those kind of wins and you can keep the business motivated and staff motivated. Because if you don't do that, it, it, it could be a three to five year project or sometimes longer. So I think if we can bring the community together and start sharing what has been done well, what's successful, and you don't need to talk about products, but what what processes did we change how do we go about implementation how do we communicate how do we kind of continue the journey and and, and keep moving and and there's there's good and bad in that we should talk about things that didn't work well that failed because then that helps everyone else and i think the cyber community is actually pretty good at doing that i think we we come together because we realize we're all kind of fighting the same battle i mean that's really quite interesting to me i'd like to see that happen yeah, I'd love to see a zero trust forum conference where people bring together their stories. Their, how do they, you know, launch these projects? Where do they run into issues? Where were their successes? Um, I saw at ISC2 Congress in Nashville a few weeks ago, um, the CISO from the Palo Alto School District got on stage and he detailed his journey. And I was like, educational district uh, doing zero trust? And um, he walked us through the entire project, how he did it, how he funded it, uh, the results. And um, it was impressive. Um, uh, I'd love to see more of that because I think that would generate some groundswell and some awareness and people would be like, hey, you know, I can I can do this. It's, you know, if the school district can do it, certainly uh, enterprise can get on board. Maybe yeah. that's what could come next from the SSC forum, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I want to ask you a fun question. Um and I'm not going to ask you if you want if you have pineapple on pizza because you've already ruined my day with that answer. Um, but I'm a, I'm a foodie. I love my food. I, I've had the the pleasure of traveling the world and enjoying some really good food. Um, but what's been your best food experience? And it doesn't necessarily need to be that the meal was fantastic. It could be that it was in a great place. You had family members around or had a great view, whatever it may be. But what was your best food experience? My best food experience. Wow, that's <laughs> I'm a, I'm a foodie as well. Um, I think that I love to cook, so I do a lot of smoking. I do a lot of sous vide uh, and baking and things like that. So I think it's just cooking a 
a great meal, collaborating with my wife and daughters to put together a fantastic meal where maybe I, you know, smoke something and we bake some bread and we have some fresh vegetables picked from my garden um, for a nice family dinner. I think that's that's the best food experience. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. John, over to you. All right. So we have Thanksgiving coming up uh, and you mentioned smoking and, and you like to cook. So uh is turkey on the menu? Is it not? And if so, uh, how do you cook it? So generally, uh, on Thanksgiving Day, my sister, who's local, hosts it. So I don't have to make a big turkey. I don't get the opportunity to make a big turkey. What I usually do is um, I will sous vide a uh, turkey thigh and a turkey breast the following day. So what I do is I brine those, um, and then I'll sous vide them. Um, and you know they turn out moist and fantastic. Um, I'll do a couple of different seasonings, like one will be a little bit more herby and maybe one's a little bit more mustardy. But the, the secret here is after you brine these things, you take the skin off and then you uh, you basically render the skin down to make crackling. So you put it between oh. two baking sheets with oh. a, with parchment paper and you put a heavy pot on top so it stays flat. And then you, you, know, you, you roast it or bake it. And uh, it renders in its own fat and it gets really nice and crispy. So then you, you know, you break it up into little chunks. It's almost like a, a really crispy, you know, savory, salty, fatty chip. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I'm usually of the opinion to ban the bird because I, I don't I, I don't get it. I'm I like a ham on Thanksgiving and I, my family knows that. But um, you may have convinced me there. I, I think I need to come over. <laughs> I okay. think, to be honest, when we bring everyone together in, in, in kind of a conference to talk about Zero Trust Journey, Jason, you'll be doing the food for that, right? Okay. It so sounds like, time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't need We're going to need a big budget there, people. Jay. Well, we can figure <laughs> that out. I think it's going to be exciting. I mean, Jason, I'd really like to thank you for coming online, um, having this conversation with us. I think zero trust is a, is a very intriguing topic. It's definitely a topic that's growing in popularity. I fundamentally believe it's a, a strategy that can be helped with product. I think it's a journey that people need to go on. I think it's going to take time. I'd like to thank you for the books you've written and, and for the talks you give and for trying to educate people because I think that's a really positive thing. And I'd definitely like you to come back on in six months and see how how people's journeys are going and and what advice you can offer people and what you've seen that's good and what you've seen that's bad. Um, but over to you, John, for any final comments. No, thank you. And, and Jason, you, you know, your book uh, was one of the first books I read when I um, mustered out of the enterprise space and into the vendor space, uh, just to kind of get an idea of zero trust, what it is, how do you implement it? Um, it, it? It really changed my mindset. So thank you. No, thank you both. That's really, I really appreciate that. Um, and thanks to those who are listening. Um, if you're interested, I'd be, be happy to connect with you and talk. You can find me on LinkedIn or you can reach me uh, through numberlinesecurity.com. Uh, I'd be happy to continue the conversation. So thank you again, John and Jay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge. <laughs>